Hello guys, welcome to today's podcast. I'm Fabio. I am Gregory Estime. And today we have our guest speaker to start, Mr. John Marangola. Hi, I'm John. So the idea for today's podcast is we're going to talk about some cool physics topics that we find cool. Um, we're going to start with relativity. We're going to go a little bit into quantum mechanics. We're going to be doing about stars and space, a um, couple cool paradoxes that we know about, and be offering our opinions as well as defining. Um, so yeah, Greg, what do you want to start with? You want to start with relativity? Uh, definitely. We can talk about special relativity, um, talk about how the speed of light is constant, and uh, something really cool that I learned from the class is that uh, no matter what, like the fact that time bends when you're traveling at the speed of light. So like that is absolutely insane. It's it's wild, and then I I think it was like the Vega thought experiment where like if it were like twenty five light years away, and you went to it at the speed of light and back, how only two years would pass when you're in the spaceship, but like from the time frame of the Earth, like fifty years will pass. Like that's just absurd to me. And just wrapping my head around that that was something that was like a huge obstacle in the beginning of the class. Yeah, absolutely. So what what Greg's talking about is um, time dilation, which is a key part of Einstein's theory of relativity, which says that when when you're going at extremely fast speeds, time seems to be going slower. Um, it doesn't just seem to be going slower; it actually goes slower. Um, you know, that's one of the crazy things about time dilation is by a factor of gamma you actually go slower right so i mean like that's one of the things we could talk about is the twin paradox so you know you have two twins one of them's on earth call him goslow and speedo he gets on his rocket ship and he takes off right and um okay we can neglect the fact that you know we're not in an inertial frame of reference at all times because when we're accelerating obviously that's not an inertial frame but if we say that we have a very expensive rocket so it accelerates arbitrarily quickly then we can neglect the fact that, you know, we can say at most we're in two non-inertial frames of reference when we're accelerating and decelerating. And then we can actually say we can consider the trip there. There's a period where we're in an inertial frame and there's a, and the trip back. There's also a period where we're in an inertial frame when we're traveling at a constant velocity. And if we analyze this, we can say, OK, when the twin gets on his rocket and he goes, um, he's going to come back to the Earth. And by the time he comes back, um, depending on how fast he was traveling, um, what percentage of the speed of light it was, he will be um, significant. He would have he will have aged significantly less than his twin brother. And now you might ask, um, if you didn't know the answer to this question, who aged more? And um, the answer would actually be that the twin on Earth obviously um, aged more at a f- at a faster rate. Um, but the way to consider this is by thinking that only the twin on Earth is subject to. Um, you can only apply special relativity to the twin on Earth because he's in an inertial frame at all times. The twin in the in the um, rocket, you actually can't use um, the Lorentz transformation to analyze his motion. So you'd have to look at the perspective of the twin who's on Earth. And if you look at him, you will see that, um, yes, he aged considerably quick, faster relative to the person in the uh, rocket. So that that's an interesting consequence of special relativity that's constantly talked about. Yeah, that that is super interesting. Um, the idea, basically, I think it might be helpful for us to backtrack and just go go back and explain. Well, where does where does what is general what is relativity? So, the key idea behind Einstein's theory is 
that every everything is relative as <laughs> as the name suggests so a good idea for you to get an intuition behind this would be if you see a car or spaceship or anything going away from you at such speed x like at 10 miles an hour in their frame of reference they're stationary and you is the one who's going away from them at 10 miles an hour so there is no absolute truth in per se everything depends on on your on your perspective yeah. on on your thought mm -hmm. and the same thing applies to speed and how it changes time so in let's suppose if you're on earth for and a person is traveling to a distant star at a really fast rate in their perspective they're stationary and you're the one who's actually traveling like earth is moving away from them which is something crazy but um the math checks out and the theory checks out um even though it sounds very counterintuitive this whole idea that time slows down when you speed up i think a good thought experiment is like imagine you're on a train and then you throw a ball up to you personally the ball is just going up and then down so let's suppose it goes up by six inches and then it goes down by another six inches so for you that ball moved a total of 12 inches now let's suppose greg let's suppose i'm the one on the train let's suppose greg here is on a on the earth just like chilling and then to him stationary yeah he's stationary 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 yeah. exactly um so to him the ball goes up the same six inches and goes down the same six inches but in this time because i'm moving the ball is also moving to whatever direction i'm going in so let's suppose i'm going um, quite fast and the ball moves six inches to the side um so time would be slower to me because for greg the ball moved more distance in this in the same amount of time of course mm -hmm. exactly so well the basic equation here that may be easier to think about is displacement equals velocity times time right the velocity of the ball is the same yeah. for both of us i'm throwing the balls up at the same speed mm. however if the displacement for greg was bigger his time must have been slower so that is the basic thought experiment to give you a little bit of intuition behind time dilation. Now, I think a cool question is, now that we know how this works and why it works, would you would you take the trip to Vega, Greg? Definitely. I'd love to see how the world would be 50 years and I would only age two. Like, <laughs> uh, that'd be amazing. You can yeah. basically... You can basically time travel. Exactly. In a way. That's all it is. You know? It's kind of amazing. Um, like, one of my favorite movies, Interstellar. Um, just watching that and having him come back to Earth and his daughter's like fully grown, like, uh, just imagine. It's just absurd. It, and the thing is, like, I, I can talk to people about this. Like, I remember the first day that I learned this concept, I went and I, like, told my roommates, this is crazy. Like, time travel is essentially real. And, like, a lot of people, they just, like, they're like, it's hard for them to believe it, you know? It's, it's just wild. And, um, but yeah, any day. John, I'd would you that. take the trip? I mean, yeah, I think I would take the trip. I think anyone that's sensible would take the trip. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think I might not take the trip. Oh, really? Because, like, 
let's suppose your grandparents and your parents would all probably be dead. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, that's <laughs> definitely one thing you got to accept. But uh, I, I don't know. I just think it'd be such a breakthrough, you know? It would. Like, and, and what you brought up about Interstellar is very key. Because the biggest thing in Interstellar, so, like, the most time that, like, the biggest time dilation that happens is not when they're actually traveling on the spaceship, but it's when they're on the planet. And this is this is the jump that allowed Einstein to go from his special relativity to general relativity, is that the effects of acceleration and gravity are the same. So what happens, like, it's like a person might ask, sure, when you're on the spaceship or when you're on the train, I can see why, why time moves slower for the person who's going fast. That's the example the thought experiment we said about throwing the ball, you know? Um, however, why does that happen when, when you're on a planet? Well, that's because if you're on a place where gravity, well, gravity is basically just acceleration, right? We, um, so if you're on a planet that has a very strong gravity, that means you're accelerating. And if you're accelerating, that's basically the same idea of you moving really fast in a spaceship, which is accelerating. So gravity has the same effects as acceleration. So if you're on a planet which is extremely dense and has a very high gravity, which is what happened with Interstellar, time is going to go slower for you. And same, th well, the opposite is also true. Technically, when you're on the moon, time is going slower for people on the Earth. So I guess the, op the opposite <laughs> is happening um, at a very small magnitude, but... A magnitude, nevertheless. Yeah, and I mean, again, these are idealizations. The Earth is not a perfectly inertial frame of reference. We have the Coriolis effect and various other things, but we can consider it to be, you know, like we like to think that where we're sitting right now is an inertial frame, although we are really rotating and there's lots of other factors. But another thing to think about that's kind of cool is there's actually on one other thing that's constant in all frames of reference um, besides the speed of light is the, t the relative speed between two observers, no matter how fast they're going, they will both agree on the relative speeds of the of themselves relative to another observer. That's something that is always preserved. And I think that's kind of interesting, but it's intuitive if you think about it. If you think about just um, the Lorentz transformation looking at one frame from another, um, it makes sense why the velocities of them relative to the other would be the same. Well, that's an interesting thing. And you might you might be skeptical of these ideas. Be like, wait, does time really slow down? Does a does a moving clock really move slower than a, than a stationary clock by a factor of gamma? Wh why does this happen? But actually, there's some experimental evidence of this. And I mean, without experimental evidence, it's not physics. It's just, you know, it's just conjecture. So I think it's worth mentioning, you know, we have like the muon only has a lifetime of 2.2 microseconds. However, when you consider that that's in the frame of the muon, it all makes sense because um, the muon actually it it time dilation and length contraction both allow the muon to reach earth because if there was no time dilation there was no length contraction the muon would always stay arbitrarily it, it would it would decay before it ever reached the ground it would never hit the ground however we have particle detectors we have muon boxes on earth that get muons quite periodically and this the the virtue of this fact is that muons are moving at some speed and there's there's in the muon frame um, there's a there's a period of the muons decay and this period is only 2.2 microseconds but when we consider the motion of the muon relative to the earth um, then we might find that 
um, the actual period of the muons more like 13 microseconds and it ends up reaching the earth so that's one thing and another thing is we also have high-speed airplanes that have moved across the earth at very um, relativistic not relativistic but much faster speeds than normal and we found with cesium clocks atomic clocks that um, there is actually some measurable very small um, you know dilation but don't go out and try it on your own because it's like a, a tiny little thing you're never going to measure or use yeah um that's so that's really interesting so the muon is a is a fundamental particle isn't it um i would say i would say you could consider it um a fundamental particle of sorts yes so that's interesting so what john so john was saying that like this particle this muon has a really short lifespan right yes and we wouldn't be able to see this lifespan because it's so short, but because the muon is moving so fast, its time slows down and we can see it. Um, Greg, did you hear about the the whole satellite thing? Did you know that they have to account for time dilation on satellites? Really? Yeah. Is it because like the, the sonar things are moving that quick? Yeah, they're just zooming wow. around the earth in space so fast. That's that the the person who programs satellites wow has to factor in for time dilation like otherwise everything would be off wow spending so time ourselves so that Just is like pretty that. interesting yeah that is really interesting um, i never even knew that yeah any other scenes from interstellar that you think are cool in relation to time dilation that's a good question um definitely the wormhole oh yeah that's wicked worm- cool yeah the wormhole is amazing and it almost <laughs> makes you it gets you thinking like could we actually do this in like real life because you know like it's one thing to see it you know in hollywood but like if we could do something like that because like let's say i mean at the rate we're going earth might be inhabitable sometime soon yeah for sure so like if we're able to like i don't know like just continue with learning about stem and just create these breakthroughs learn more about you know the structure of the universe we could find another habitable planet and the best way to like you know like travel to a habitable planet that's miles or light years away i won't even use the word miles um it, it would have to be like traveling through a wormhole and it just i think it's really 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 cool and uh just learning about black holes in this class um it, i learned a lot more you know about how they work and like learning that there's a black hole at the center of each galaxy like it's it's amazing. I I almost want to like find out what's in the middle of the galaxy. You know, like shoot, like somebody going to black hole. Like yeah, I think yeah. I think in the Interstellar movie, someone actually goes into yeah. the black hole. Yeah. Um, Which is a little absurd. I mean, it is. like and the whole yeah. concept of I think in yeah. Interstellar they base it loosely off like an Einstein Rosen bridge, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. That's the the wormhole. Yeah. It's also very highly. Um, I would say dramatized, but it's still an interesting concept yeah. and it gets you thinking, you know, mm-hmm. um, it does. about how much we, it does. how little we know about the universe exactly. and how and crazy it is. Yeah. I remember Professor Bakshi, he was like, yeah, you would, if you got sucked into a black hole, you just stretch like a spaghetti string. That's yeah. exactly what he said. That is yeah. also another, one of the other effects of relativity is mm-hmm. length, length contraction. Well, yes, length contraction. So, yeah, I think it's also... Like those movies, even though they might be dramatized, they're they're pretty accurate. They they're all they're accurate, but they get you thinking about things you never. Like it motivated me to take this class in a way yeah. because mm-hmm. I wanted to find out. 
yeah. like any class called structure of the universe that's grabbed my attention yeah. right there and would if you? it fills my natural science core like come on <laughs> let's go let's have would some you, fun with it would you go let's suppose like we discover this was the thing i'm not so sure but i don't think that wormholes can happen naturally i think they have to be placed isn't that a thing or do you know anything about that um i'm not entirely sure about that no i i can't say for for a fact i i'm not very well versed on wormholes um google it yeah. see if wormholes yeah can be uh, i could have sworn i read somewhere it's like it's almost like folding a piece of paper like let's say yeah see I'll, I'll look it up look up if they um occur naturally or if they have to be made it's like this is what i heard it's like let's say you want to get to this point and you're right here right yeah essentially what how wormhole works is you just fold it like that and you're just bending space and time and it allows you to travel from here right to there and you're just saving all this distance that's yeah, that's essentially. absurd yeah, it's it's really interesting yeah i think i do remember leonard suskin there was some um interview i watched with him where he was referencing something that Feynman said about them um that had something to do with this concept of um, their creation, but I, I'm not exactly well versed on how their formation occurs. Yeah, um, we just we just googled it, and I think in theory it's possible for a natural wormhole to exist, but in the movie it says that the wormhole was placed by a previous by some some sort of yeah. some sort of. Um, society or yeah like supernatural you know yeah. so my question is let's say for some reason we encounter a wormhole oh yeah would you would you like be the first person to would you would you take the wormhole path in a way i mean somebody has to some somebody would, has would to. it be you <laughs> would it be me i i really don't know because you know when i'm faced with like these hypothetical questions like oh would i go to mars if i could like spend five years there and you know like be certain that i'm returning back to earth like without a doubt you know like because it's mars and we don't know anything about it and th I, I think there's just some type of thrill in learning and because like that's the only way that we're able to progress we need to like continue learning about all these things and it, topics someone so, had to be the first one to step on the moon yeah right? exactly I mean, yo pete can you uh google the gravity in mars yeah, I saw this really cool video recently. So it was like, it was an astronaut jumping on Earth, and he was jumping two feet up. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that, that he jumps sense. two feet up, and then he goes to Mars, and I think he's jumping like four feet, and then he goes on the Moon, and he's jumping nine feet. So, huh? That's interesting. So the gra the gravity on on Mars is significant. It's almost a third, a little bit less than a third of, um, a little more than a third than the gravity on Earth. Yeah. So. Tying this to our convo about relativity, this would imply that time on Earth would go by slower than time on Mars. Sure, by a tiny, tiny fraction. But if you were to say, like, for billions and billions of yeah, years, it's a different story. Progress on Earth, yeah. progress on Mars, be would be slow. Like, if you had the yeah. same machinery and the same, exactly. the same setting on mm -hmm. both planets, Mars would take longer to develop. And reach the same conclusions on Earth exactly. just because it's relevant. Yeah. So that makes you, that really <laughs> makes you think because like yeah. that that makes you think about you know other planets out there. You exactly. know, like shoot, they might be just be like progressing like exponentially faster exactly. than us. So you like, know? 
let's suppose it took it took humans like X amount of years to discover relativity, whatever. Um, just an example. If if there was another civilization that had exactly the same resources as us, but they inhabited a planet with an extremely extremely larger gravity and they were able to survive that time would move slower for them so in our reference they would be able to achieve the same things we achieved like for them it'd be the same time but for us it would have taken a lot longer for us it's the same thing of the trip to vega so if for us took like a thousand years to get to discovering something for them like for us it would have taken them only 500 years or whatever so they could advance a lot faster with us without actually being smarter or having betting resources yeah. that's crazy yeah yeah it but that's that's also assuming that we're on the same playing field in terms of resources available yeah. like you know of course say there's a deficiency of mm -hmm. you know iron or um copper or something that's necessarily essential to the progression yeah. of a certain topic you also you need all these factors to be constant um in order to make mm -hmm. that assumption but i think if you had a carbon copy of earth in the place of mars with the same people um then i mean yes then you could make an assumption on that level yeah, of then they, they would yeah. be behind yeah just because of relativity exactly. is on their side yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah but i think that um you know considering there's much more um relevant materials and resources on earth at least at this point that we've d determined um, and i think mars is much more difficult to um, mine some of these resources on it's already going to progress much slower just um, just by virtue of that, because there's a there's a threshold of things you need in order to actually be productive. Yeah, that is facts. John, um, I think you were mentioning to me something about a about like a paradox about a stair that had to do with relativity. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, it it's um it's the pole and the barn paradox we were talking about briefly. It's basically. Um, it hinges on the fact that simultaneity is not um, is not the same. It's not uh, yeah. So yeah. So what what he means by simultaneity is that um, let's suppose it's like if things happen at one time for me, they might happen at like a different sequence to someone else. So a good thought experiment for this is like imagine. Greg is traveling on a s spaceship and he's going pretty fast and he's like right in the middle of the spaceship and in the front of the spaceship there's a green light and in the back there's a red light and I'm just um, stationary in my reference frame um, let's suppose I'm just on earth looking at him through a big telescope if both of the lights flash at the same time for me so I see green and red flashing once together that might not mean that they flash at the same time for Greg. So because he's moving, so like imagine like both lights flash and then the light from the front is traveling to him, but he's also traveling towards that light. So he meets it faster than the red light coming from the back of the ship. So to me, both lights go off at the same time. But to Greg, he sees first green and then red, which is crazy because we're both right. But yeah, that's what John means by simultaneity. John, proceed. Yeah, another thing about that that's really interesting too is mathematically you can prove if you take two arbitrary frames, one that's stationary, um, we'll, we'll consider them inertial reference frames for the purpose of this example, but you can you take two arbitrary frames, one which is stationary, one which is moving, um, and you observe an event occur, say in like 
X and you look at the event in X prime, if you say that one event is a cause of another event, the causality is actually always preserved as long as you are traveling um, less than the speed of light, less than or equal to, but you can never travel equal to the speed of light as we know because the acceleration um, actually decreases as you approach the speed of light because we have gamma cubed ma is the force of the relativistic correction, right? So one over square root of one minus v squared over c squared times ma, um, that, that quantity cubed, right? Um, in f out, out front. Um, but it can actually be shown that mathematically you can never have one event that's the cause of another or one event that happens first actually happen after. So you can't flip the order of the events. And this is a consequence of the speed of light being um, a boundary that you kind of can't go over. Not kind of, you can't go over. Um, so anyways, back to the paradox. Um, just an interesting side note. I think it's, um, it's called the farmer and pole slash farmer and barn paradox. And basically what it is is you have a farm boy um, running with a pole at a barn. And so the pole is a certain amount larger than the length of the barn. And basically what happens is um, so there's two observers. There's one observer who's stationary relative to this, and there's another observer who is um, running with the pole. And so they both, the guy who sees um, the guy running into the barn um, thinks one thing, and the guy who's, who's running with the pole thinks another thing. So the guy who's witnessing it, who's stationary, says like, oh, he's going to fit the pole in the barn. And the guy running with the pole says, no way, I'm not going to fit the pole in the barn. And this is the resolution of this is that simultaneity is not actually the same in, in um, inertial reference frames. It's, it's not at all. Um, and so when you consider the events of the front end of the barn being, the front end of the pole being in the barn and the back end being in, and the times at which these occur, um, the simultaneity of these events is not the same in both frames. So they might reach different conclusions. Um, and that, that's the resolution of the paradox is that um, sim simultaneity is not absolute. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's um, relatively can, can make you bend your mind. Um, yeah. uh, it's pretty interesting stuff. Um, why don't we start talking about something else that comes with relativity, I guess, in a way, which is the idea of space-time. Greg, you want to explain to us, like, high-level overview of what space-time is? So, um, space-time. Basically, uh, within space-time, matter distorts time. Uh, we can't visualize a four-dimensional space. Um, and, like, I guess an instance of this is like uh, taking a flight from y the US to China and you fly over the northern hemisphere which is just like it's not what you usually think you know like you usually think you'd, oh like just go along you know one of the longitude you know uh, coordinates but uh, no that's not true we just go over the northern hemisphere and um, can bend light uh, gravity arises from distortions of space time as well um, and uh, the universe may have no boundaries, but uh, no center, and uh, we may have finite volume. <laughs> awesome. That is, that is a great list of things that space-time does. So basically, um, what space-time is, it's, it's our fabric. It's the fabric of the universe, which all of us are, are surrounded by. All of us are surrounded by by this fourth dimension called space time. It's just one thing. It's not like space and time. Space time or or intertwined, and they're one and one thing alone. So every time you're traveling through space, you're traveling to 
through time and when you're traveling through time you're traveling through space so it's quite interesting to think that we are like living inside a fourth gigantic dimension that engulfs everything called space-time and the basic idea um, behind this this idea and this theory is that gravity is no longer thought about in the Newtonian idea of having a force that pulls something towards something else um, almost like a magnet instead it's just like matter bends this this fourth dimension that engulfs us all it bends space-time and since everything follows the straightest possible path gravity comes from something followed it's still following the the possible the straightest possible path but because its environment is bent this a straight line becomes a curved line um so a, a, an analogy that people usually use to convey this idea it's like um like a rubber sheet um imagine have a really big rubber sheet and then you just put weights on it um the weights are gonna bend that rubber sheet and if you like toss a coin on on this on this sheet it's gonna go straight and then when it goes close to the region where it's bent by weight it's gonna start curving kind of like it happens on a coin funnel um so so that's the that's the key idea behind behind this thing and um it's very helpful if you google a picture so if you just google like um rubber sheet analogy space time um on your computer you can see something i'll see if we can put a picture on the on the video but so you have like mass right weight mass bends space time and space time alters the straightest possible path so what gregor's trying to what gregor's mentioned first it was about about the earth right so about people thinking a flight in the earth um but first let's just talk about why the earth orbits the sun like it's it's no longer a newtonian idea of the sun is pulling magically the earth towards um it and the earth is um, circulating it's just that the earth bends space-time and the straightest possible path for the earth therefore becomes curved and it becomes curved along the sun and the closer it is to the sun the more curved it is that's why you see planets um that orbit closer to the sun their orbits are a lot more circular and once you go far and far like uh, jupiter or saturn it's a lot more elliptical yeah the eccentricity is greater yeah exactly so you have this idea and so basically we leave a flat geometry and we go into something like a spherical geometry um, which is curved so the same thing happens with earth and earth itself because earth is curved we have we inhabit a spherical geometry in which well two parallel lines actually intersect so imagine like if you start if you're in dc and then let's suppose i'm in i'm in boston and we're both walking north right we're both parallel technically we're still gonna meet in the north pole so that's the idea behind spherical geometry and to st to stress this that things follow the straightest possible path 
is exactly what Greg mentioned with with the plane. So because Earth is curved, the straightest path from China from a flight from China to the United States, it's actually not a straight line if you imagine Earth being like just a, a flat map, a two D map. It's actually a curved line because Earth is not flat i mean <laughs> earth is not flat shout out to the flat earth <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's not flat at all so the actual po- the straightest possible path is through the north pole because it's curved and the curve would take less time than you trying to go straight on a on a curved dimension on a on a curved geography um so yeah, yeah. does that make sense yeah, yeah, that's in, that's intuitive. I think it's also crazy when people think about like classically, you know, energy um, conservation, and we think about oh, kinetic energy, potential energy. Um, if it's a, you know, if there are no um, non-conservative um, external forces on the system, like friction's a common one. You know, energy is conserved. But when we think about this um, from the framework with from which Einstein uh, created, it's actually not just an energy conservation, it's mass energy. So, you know, mass energy is conserved. This is what allows us to make, um, you know, to make assumptions about like um, radioactive, um, like say you have like a nuclear decays and things of the of that nature where we can say that mass energy is conserved. So you have a an elastic collision and actually something gets more massive as a result of this um so people would say oh energy is not conserved well no mass energy is conserved um and there's a whole different framework we have to look at like the rest energies of particles um and it's it's very interesting to think about that um you know everyone says that mc squared is the is the most beautiful equation but that's just the rest energy you know of something if you think about it's really gamma mc squared is the the total energy per se so i think i think it's an interesting um concept as well yeah that is very interesting and it you know this is something i want to talk about today as well is e equals mc squared because growing up i always saw that equation everywhere and people were saying um, that it was a very important equation and whatnot but i never truly understood it until i took this class um we'll get back to that we'll get back to e equals mc squared after we finish on space time but i want to just tackle a little more in space time about what greg said that can bend light so that is really cool in the sense that like imagine that there that there's a star there's a star behind the sun right the light of that star is going to go around the sun it's going to go through the straightest possible path um which around the sun becomes curved because the curves space-time like a ball curves a rubber sheet and the light is gonna like it goes close to the sun it curves around the sun and then it goes back to the earth so this gives this might give people the impression that something is not where it actually is because you see light coming from an angle but that's because that's only because it's being curved by space-time the thing is not there so um so that can cause a lot of confusion, uh, but it's really cool. It's a really cool concept, and yeah, what do you think about it, Greg? Um, I, I just think it's like, it's amazing. Um, and I guess like, I, something's like inflating a balloon because like the center is always changing as you inflate it, 
and just expands. I guess this kind of relates to how like, I, like the universe is expanding. And I guess this is another complete different topic, but um, I remember like there was a lot of empirical data that showed like, all right, is the universe like expanding then contracting? And as you like see like the data points, uh, they like ran simulations on like whether the universe works was expanding. And um, it seems like the data points just follow that same like simulation. And uh, like, that's just, it's, it, it's just amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it is, it is amazing. So, you know what, let's, let's, let's tackle equals MC squared. Cause right. I think that is a essential equation. Everyone should know what it means. So, the way I like to think about it, and guys, um, interrupt me if I'm wrong here, um, is that every single piece of matter, matter, so everything, has an inherent energy bound inside of it. So even you, like how much effort you weigh, um, well, okay, let's backtrack. Everything is formed about with atoms and molecules and um, elements. And every element has energy inside of it, bound by by the strong force, which is um, what holds the nucleus together, and also by other forces. Um, but the important thing is, e equals mc squared basically means everything that exists, everything that is matter, has energy inside of it, and you can take that energy if you break it apart or if you stick it together and why so why is this important well why does this matter first of all it's how the sun works and without the sun there would be no life and it's also how um nuclear bombs work and nuclear generators so let's talk it's easier to you'll get it better once we illustrate it so Greg, talk to us about how the sun works. So what's what's going on inside the sun? So uh, essentially what's happening in the sun is there's just constant nuclear fusion. Exactly. Is it, is it not a big big pile of coal burning? Yeah, no, no, it isn't. It isn't. Contrary to popular belief, no. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so essentially there's just constant nuclear fusion. And um, there were uh, back... They used to think it was like chemical and gravitational energy. It can only explain like why the sun has lasted 25 million years. And uh, ultimately, like we had to find out, all right, we obviously know that the sun's older than 25 million years old. Like what is happening in here? And it turns out it's nuclear fusion and there are a ton of different layers of the sun. Um, I, I can't name them off the top of my head, but um, essentially I know what happens is like it's just nuclear fusion in the middle and then it just seeps through the sun and uh, eventually like reaches out and we see the powerful the sun you know to exactly. get the sun rays so the sun is basically powered by nuclear fusion so what is nuclear fusion and how does it work so um it's basically the fusion nuclei nuclei um so they basically just fuse keep on fusing over time uh, there's energy released as they fuse and um, this ends up um, ends up just releasing a lot of energy from the nucleons of the these particles exactly exactly so in the Sun because it is not a massive start 
Um, it's actually uh, just an average sized star. Um, it's what what we see happening in the sun. The nuclear fusion in the sun is hydrogen fusion, which happens through something called the proton-proton chain. And the general idea is, what is what is nuclear fusion? As Greg already said, it's basically you get two elements and you stick them together to make something new. And you're thinking, well, how do you get energy out of that? Well, in the case of um, the sun, which it fuses hydrogen atoms together, we get energy because the total amount of mass after the fusion is smaller than the amount of mass in the beginning of the fusion. Um, Greg, you wanna just Google Google the number so we know exactly how much mass um, is after. So basically the idea is like, you have four hydrogen and you're gonna form one helium, right? A hydrogen is just, is just a, a proton. Um, but the thing is, if you weigh four hydrogen and if you weigh one helium, the mass of the helium is less than the mass of the four hydrogen. And that resulting, like that extra mass is what gives us energy, is, is according to equals mc squared. So how much energy do you get from two, from four hydrogen fusing into one helium? Well, that's the difference between the total weight of the four hydrogen and the weight of the one helium. And you do that times c squared. C is three times 10 to the eighth. That's just um, speed of light. So that's a lot. That's a <laughs> 10 to the 8th is a lot. That's, uh, what, uh, 10 million? 10 to the 8th? Yeah, yeah. Well, also, um, you have to, uh, it's 300, uh, I think 300 million meters per second. Um, but uh, you have to, yeah, just, it's a result of mass energy conservation. And that's assuming you have to factor in the kinetic energies of the particles after, um, for, for fission and things of the nature. So, I mean, everything... Um, that which is also fission has some binding energy associated with it and that binding energy um, is is the um, composite of the two from which we can generalize the equations but I'd like to say one other thing um, that we th find really interesting is you think about a photon which has no mass and you think about how light is both a, a particle and a wave the duality um, so like a photon has no mass you'd say e equals mc squared oh wait photons have no energy but they move at the speed of light but that's not exactly right because e equals mc squared it's only the rest energy of a particle so if we consider um the the formulation that e squared equals the square root of quantity p squared c squared plus mc squared quantity squared um then we say well there's no mass associated with a photon so then the energy must just be the square root of uh pc squared and that that result of that is um or p squared c squared the result of that is pc so the energy of each photon has PC. So photons do still have energy given by their momentum, which is gamma mv, which is, or gamma mu. And then, so gamma mu times C, that's going to give you the energy of a photon. And, and so, so photons don't have no energy. That's a common misconception to say, oh, they have no rest energy, so um, they must be, be just like have zero energy. But we know that can't be true. Exactly, because we do have something called solar energy and solar energy panels. Um, which we'll we'll get into after we finish our our sun. So basically, as as we were talking, um, so you have the hydrogen and they fuse into a helium. So how does that happen? Well, hydrogen or one proton and 
proton has a positive charge and as you guys know positive charges like charges repel each other so for a for a pro for a hydrogen atom to get close to another hydrogen hydrogen atom that is not easy they do not want that because they repel is the same as you're trying to like stick two magnets together they're like you're trying to stick the same side of two magnets together that's not gonna that's not gonna work so well how how does that happen well the sun is really 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 heavy and that means that it has a lot of gravity and that gravity crushes matter and makes it really 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 dense and when things are really dense they move really fast and so what is happening is like the sun is crushing and crushing and crushing and crushing until it's like trying to become as small as possible but it gets to a point that becomes so small and so dense um well size is sun is big but um it could be a lot bigger it's, it's it was it's a lot smaller than it was when it was just a, a gas cloud but we'll get into how stars form in a couple hours but um so the way it works is like it gets so small and so dense that particles such as hydrogen get agitated and they get moving and they're moving so fast and so fast that even though they're trying to repel each other sometimes they hit and they stick together well why do they stick that's something called the strong nuclear force which says that when two things get extremely close together they get binded together um so basically you have a bunch of hydrogen they're moving around really fast they don't want to stick but sometimes they crash because they're going so fast and why are they going fast gravity and they stick and when they stick they form something called a, a deuterium i think it's called it's just a hydrogen uh, isotope yeah exactly so you get which is something that still boggles me it's like you get two hydrogen and when they stick you get a hydrogen and a neutron that's um because the quarks well um the quarks inside the hydrogen change what <laughs> okay we'll get into that <laughs> later on don't worry about that right now so basically you have two hydrogen they hit and and then you have something that is size two instead of size one but that releases a little bit of energy because the mass is less and then those hit and they keep hitting until they get to four and that is what we like to call helium so well why isn't the sun a tiny 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 speck that we can't see if gravity is crushing it so hard well it's because this explosion is really releasing a lot of energy and it's fighting gravity until it reaches a balance which the sun has a balance right now it's oscillating up and down sometimes um, when fusion slows down gravity um, crushes it a little bit more and then the things move faster and then fusion heats up again and then it expands and it slows down so it's like a thermostat um, a lot of people like to describe it that way so the way so that's what's that's what's happening in the sun and this energy um, it takes a lot of time but it eventually makes it out to the surface and it, it it comes to the earth and it warms us so basically the sun is just a lot of explosion yeah. going on at the same time yeah and you know I mean I could be completely wrong when I say this but I guess seeing this, because one thing that we learned in the class was that during the Big Bang, um, 
75% of the elements that were made were hydrogen and then 25% were helium. And um, I, I guess I always, I, I never really even thought about it, but I just assumed that like when the Big Bang happened, like all the elements were created and it was like, you know, yeah, at so that. Did I. <laughs> exactly. And so uh, like really just like looking at this chain of just um, like nuclear fusion between hydrogen atoms and how like four hydrogen uh, atoms can create uh, helium. It's just amazing. And I guess it kind of just explains how uh, we are able to get to all these different types of elements. And uh, like, are there still being elements created? Are there new elements that are just being formed? Is, is that happening? I, uh, what yeah. do you think? I, is there, are elements going to be formed that we don't already know, like naturally formed? Mm -hmm. I, I honestly don't know enough. Yeah, John, okay. do you have any input? Um, I guess um, it's a it's a strange question that you pose. If you say if you say um, if you say element, as in you mean something that's on the periodic table, or as in well, um, yeah. I guess like even within the periodic table, um, like we obviously don't know everything. Facts. You know, we don't know all the elements. Um, but do you think that? Uh, as time moves on, there are new formations of elements like that are just being created as time goes on, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah, um, I guess that's more of a question about atomic structure, um, and I would say I don't really know the answer to that. Um, you know, I, I'm not really sure. Yeah. yeah. My um, bad for getting carried question, away. Though. It's yeah. pretty interesting. My bad. Yeah. No, no, no. No, it's a great question. question. Yeah. yeah. I think it's pretty interesting. Maybe it's like, maybe there are already other elements that were created that we don't know yeah but they just aren't found in our exactly i mean that's how many of the elements yeah. within the periodic table were created they're artificially made so uh, i don't know yeah. and, and like are these elements even naturally occurring that's another question like who knows yeah who knows yeah so that's also like something cool about the sun yeah because it has like that power it, it's literally creating something new exactly it only had hydrogen and then, like, it's transforming hydrogen and creating helium right now mm -hmm. at the second. Yeah. And contrary to popular belief, <laughs> the sun is not going to, it's not going to go on forever. Yeah. So yeah. We still got a while, though. Yeah. yeah. We, we, we have, we, like, we have four, <laughs> four, four and a half. Yeah, we've got a minute. So. We've got a minute. But the sun is eventually going to die, and it's going to. And, well, you might ask, well, why is it going to die? So it's going to run out of hydrogen. Um, it's going to run out of hydrogen, and it's going to have to start fusing helium. But because helium is four instead of uh, one, um, then four, four like, um, atoms instead of one, then what it has a lot more positive charge, so you need a lot more energy. It's like if you have a, a, lot, a really stronger magnet. So then you need a lot more energy to glue a helium um, to another helium and the sun does not have enough mass for that so whenever we run out of hydrogen the sun's gonna have to stop fusion and what's happening when it stops fusion well then there's nothing to stop gravity and gravity's gonna gravity's gonna take over and the sun's gonna crush um, and become very 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 small yes course that'll be a if humans are still around at that day it'll be um, an interesting time yeah so 
Yeah, Greg, look up um, what's going to happen when the sun runs out of hydrogen just for us to be double sure. But that's that's like a cool thought because if we do not become an interplanetary, even an inter, um, like a uh, civilization that can travel to different solar systems, we are, humans are eventually going to die because the sun is going to explode and if we're still on Earth, there's uh, no more humans so we we need to we do have a lot of time but we need to indeed become a multi-planetary um, civilization or something even even better me inter interstellar ideally that's the name interstellar civilization which inhabits different star systems but so yeah that's how the sun works and what is the, well, the basic idea is well that only happens because e equals mc squared and if we didn't have that little if protons um if four protons were a little bit heavier than helium this would not be possible so and then well you might you might ask the next natural question is okay so we know that stars form hydrogen and helium cool there are a lot more elements in the table than that well true that's because stars as I said before, the sun is not the biggest star. And there are a lot of stars more massive than the sun. So what happens in a star that is r bigger, has more mass than the sun? Well, the sun is, imagine the sun, but a lot bigger. So it's fusing hydrogen into helium in the core. And then once that is done, it shrinks. And it shrinks, but because it's so much more massive, it can be a lot stronger and has a lot more force so it's gonna speed up those helium um the the, the left the helium where we're left over from the hydrogen fusion it's gonna speed those up and when those speed up well then we're gonna have something called a helium fusion and then eventually helium fusion is gonna stop and then you're gonna have um, i don't remember the name but another shell fusion in the core and then you're gonna have fusions and fusions and fusions and fusions but you're gonna eventually reach a point where the core is made out of iron now what happens with iron what why does fusion stop with iron well it has the problem um, that we were mentioning earlier that if you fuse iron together its mass it's not enough to cause a big enough difference in the fused elements mass and the iron's mass to release enough energy um, in accordance to e equals mc squared that's gonna keep gravity from from winning so well it's gonna crush and it's gonna it's gonna stop fusion and it's gonna crush and it's gonna do something we like to call a supernova which you've probably heard of before which is when the sun's gonna compress and compress and compress and compress so tightly that all there's gonna be left is the core and the core is just made it's gonna be an iron core and that's gonna be be left over um, and the rest of the sun is going to explode. And this explosion is going to expel all those elements created into into outer space. Um, and then, well, this is why we have elements. This is how elements came to existence, is just gravity forcing fusion. Um, so that's that's really, really cool. Let's, um, so let's talk more about star death. And uh, let's go more into detail about what's going to happen when the sun dies. Well, let's get into it now. We kind of cut away from that to explain um, the life of a high-mass star. So, as I said before, 
when um, sun runs out of of hydrogen, right? It's not gonna be. It's not massive enough, um, which means it doesn't have enough gravity to make the helium move fast enough to start um, helium fusion. So, gravity is gonna win win the fight, and that's gonna make it shrink and shrink and shrink until um, the degeneracy pressure, which is like basically saying that things can't shrink past a certain point um i guess you could put it that way um we'll go we'll go over uh, we'll go into more detail later but basically it gets to a point that quantum mechanics doesn't allow things to shrink beyond a certain point so it's going to be the sun's going to get very very condensed until it becomes a a white dwarf which is just basically made out of of the core and the rest of the of the sun and then what's gonna happen with a with a high mass star like the the star that fuses that gets to iron right that you only have the the iron core left well that's as i said before what's gonna be is a a supernova um because well we know that iron cannot provide enough energy for the fusion so gravity is gonna win and when it crushes, it's going to create like a big gap and a lot of energy is going to be released and it's going to explode and spell all of those elements into the, into the, um, into space, honestly. And all that's going to be left is going to be either option A, a neutron star, um, which is basically the iron in the core is going to get so condensed that, um, the protons are going to actually turn into neutrons and you're just going to have a really 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 dense ball of neutrons um there which is a little counterintuitive but it's it's how it works and or if the store is actually extremely massive um we're gonna have a black hole instead of a neutron star which the mass is so big it's gonna break degeneracy pressure and create a singularity in space-time which is a black hole um so yeah greg do you want to talk to us about um, a little bit more what a black hole is i know we mentioned it before but um so it's basically just a really really massive star or really really massive core which is left over from a star yeah so uh basically uh, as you get closer to uh, a black hole uh, there's a stronger more much more stronger cur curvature in uh, space-time and uh, we kind of touched on it earlier where um, if as you go into a black hole, your length contracts. Um, it, uh, Mr. Uh, Professor Boxy, he said himself that uh, you'll stretch like a spaghetti string. Spaghettification. Spaghettification, exactly. It's actually a term. Really? Yeah, it's actually the scientific name for it, spaghettification. Wow, that's funny. Um, so yeah, that's es essentially what happens as you uh, get pulled into, uh, or, well, black holes they don't suck, they don't suck, right? So it, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the cool thing is like that is that is actually um, a really big misconception that black holes just suck. But it's actually quite hard for um, you to get into a black hole. You have to walk into it, um, and it's it's really really small. So uh, if if for example the sun does not have enough mass it's not as big of a star as we already mentioned to become a black hole but imagine that it was 
right? It would become basically the size of New York. And the orbit of the Earth wouldn't change at all. Like, the Earth would not start getting attracted into the black hole. It would um, continue our regular orbit. Um, there wouldn't be no light because no more sun. But we wouldn't get sucked into the black hole. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. Because um, I feel like uh, before, like, when you hear about black holes, you think of, like, almost like a hurricane type thing. Then where it's just, like it sucks you literally think it's like a vacuum that just sucks everything you know in sight um but it's it's a lot more than that and um i guess it's there is a lot to learn about these black holes um we we already know i i guess a good amount on them but um it's just they're they're like enigmas almost you know like yeah. I, I, do you have anything to say about black holes? Yeah, I think um, black holes are very, very interesting. I think that also there's um, there's a lot of conjecture about black holes. Some of it is valid. Some of it is not. But I think that there are certain things. I think um, Neil deGrasse Tyson mentioned an interesting result of two black holes that are converging on each other, that there is a point um, if you're in the vicinity of this um I guess you could say convergence where space time will be so warped that you could end up at a place. Uh, it's a very, very loose way of explaining things, but you could end up at a location that is actually before um, the current time that you're in. And this is a very oh. um, theoretical result, but mm -hmm. there is actually um, a valid proof of this with two black holes that are circulating each other. It's okay. technically possible to perform some form of, um, I guess quasi time travel, although mm. this is very science fictiony. Yeah. yeah, I think that's an interesting result. Yeah, yeah. But uh. yeah, it's crazy when you think about these things, and then you think about how we are literally like electrons, in relatively speaking, mm. <laughs> in terms of magnitude. Yeah. You know, if you think about a hydrogen atom, even I mean, the 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 scale of these things is amazing. You know, if you make the nucleus of the size of a basketball and the electron the lone electron in the hydrogen atom would be two miles away so if we're sitting at gas in you know um with our with our nucleus you know the electron <laughs> would be over on newton how crazy is that yeah it's basically everything is just empty space <laughs> no, it, it's yeah. true it's true yeah. it's really crazy yeah um do you want to talk about like dark matter and how there's just i guess all this space within the universe that we just don't even know like what it's made out of yeah, yeah that is that is really interesting so most most of the things in the universe are not actually matter <laughs> they're dark matter um which no one really knows what dark matter is yeah um so I guess you can you can look at it in both ways and see something like it's super exciting um there's this this new thing that no one really knows uh, but we hope to understand one day mm. and then there's also the thought that is yeah. a little more depressing which is well <laughs> not even the majority of the stuff that exists we know what it is yeah <laughs> it's yeah yeah because so yeah it's, it's both ways yeah so i remember like uh from the notes um uh, we read that like most astronomers they believe that like dark matter is just made of particles that we have you know not yet even discovered so i mean i'm not trying to like circle back but like 
I, I back with like uh, when I was talking about the periodic table, like yeah, they're exactly. just all these like particles. Like, are these particles or elements are are they still being created? Um, there's just so much that we don't know about this universe. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, I agree 100. Um, do you want to do like a quick a quick recap on on stars, and then we can move on to something else? Okay. Yeah. Sure. So, well, now we know basically just just a takeaway so we can stop talking about stars is like why do they work what allows them to exist equals mc squared why does that work well because when elements come together to form different elements the elements they form have last mass and this leftover mass is converted into energy and well why do they come together in the first place gravity crutches them together and this explosion prevents gravity from crushing um always always crushing until it becomes a a tiny ball but eventually they're going to run out of fuel either because it's not massive enough to support helium fusion or because it's eventually going to get to iron and iron you can't fuse iron and get a lot of energy out of it so a cool so basically it's like a star's mass is the most important feature which is going to determine the lifespan of the star and a high mass star which is considered to have like more than eight times the mass of the sun so not the sun something that has eight times the mass of the sun they're gonna have short lives and as soon as they get hot enough to make iron and iron is no longer fuel well supernova is gonna happen um, and they're gonna become a neutron star they're gonna be so compressed that all there's gonna be left is a tiny super dense ball of neutrons or if they're even bigger than that a black hole um, and second option is they are a low mass star, which is less than two times the mass of the sun. So that is the sun. Uh, our sun is a low mass star, and these stars have longer lives. They're never gonna become hot enough for um, carbon fusion, um, which is the step above uh, helium fusion. Is a step above helium fusion, and they're gonna end up as white dwarfs, which is just like the leftover car. You know, it's gonna blow. Um, some some of the elements away and whatever's gonna get whatever's left over is gonna be crushed by gravity until it becomes something called a a white dwarf and then stars which are kind of in the middle these intermediate level stars intermediate mass um, they can make elements heavier than the carbon but they're also gonna end up as white dwarfs so enough of star stuff let's let's dive into something even smaller so we saw the very big which is stars let's go to the very small a little spice of quantum mechanics so (laughs) quantum mechanics is very complicated and a lot of people dedicate their entire lives to pursuing its study but we're just trying to like give you a high level overview and keep things as simple as we can so basically quantum mechanics is the study of the very 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 small so it's a study of nucleus and atoms and protons and neutrons. And for a really long time, people thought that a proton and a neutron were the smallest things um, in, the, in our universe. But as we know, that's not true. So, John, what, what is a proton and a neutron made out of? If it's not the smallest, or there must be something smaller. Yeah, um... I guess if you want to talk, we can talk about some subatomic particles um, if you'd like to. Um, but 
um, I guess quantum mechanically at, at the core of everything is the fact that, um, you know, if you want to talk about that, we could talk about quarks and up quarks and down quarks and things of that nature. But I guess um, it's more interesting to think about um, the, the big picture here, which is that, you know, classically or semi-classically, if you want to describe something like hydrogen, um, you can use something like the Bohr theory to describe a hydrogen atom, or you could use something like um, the Rutherford theory. But these things all break down at a certain point. Exactly. Yeah. So um, do you, which one? I don't know where, what direction. I don't know what you guys focus on in your class. If you guys want to talk about, you know, subatomic particles or. Yeah. Um, we didn't do a lot of subatomic particles, but Greg, um, just talk to us about like, what what are the smallest possible particles? So um, essentially, uh, we got uh, fermions and bosons. Bosons are they consist of photons and gluons, and but within the fermions, there are two different types. Uh, there are quarks, and there are up quarks. There are down quarks, and uh, proteins, protons, and neutrons. They make up these quarks, and uh, and the leptons. These are uh, electrons and neutrinos, and uh, I guess essentially these are what make up atoms, and. Um, these are like what our entire universe consists of. And uh, Fabio, I don't know if you have anything else. Yeah, exactly. Add. So everything that, that Greg named is what is considered to be a fundamental particle, which means we think it's the smallest thing ever. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm reluctant to say that it truly is because for the longest time we thought protons and neutrons were the smallest thing ever until we found what quarks were. But um, maybe quarks are actually made up of something else. John, is that even theoretically possible? Um, well, I think that thing, the smallest, um, I guess, like subatomic particle are, are thought to be quarks, and um, they're quantized in like, and I think thirds of the um, elementary um, charge constant, which is like 1.6 times 10 to the negative 19th, or commonly denoted as E. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that those are considered the smallest. Um, the smallest um like subatomic if not subatomic but the smallest elementary um elements of yeah subatomic particles exactly so well a proton so we said protons and neutrons were actually the smallest thing that we know of so protons and neutrons are made up of something called a quark and a proton is composed of well there are two different types of quarks there's an up quark and a down quark um, and the protons are composed of two up quarks and one down quark. And the neutron is composed of one up quark and two down quarks. So, well, why does a proton have what most people consider to be a uh, positive charge? Well, that's because an up quark has a charge of 2 over 3 um, E, while a down quark has a charge of negative one third. So, well, you have two times two over three minus um, one third. So then you're gonna have one, a charge of plus one. E, well, plus one E. Plus one E, exactly. And a neutron is the opposite. So you got uh, two down quarks and one up quark. So you got two over three minus two times um, negative one third, and that's just zero. So that's why a neutron is neutral, has zero charge. And so this explains in a way how so remember back when we were talking about uh hydrogen fusion in the sun well a pro uh, a hydrogen atom is just a proton and then a deuterium which is when two hydrogens come together 
is a proton and a neutron. And then you might ask, well, wait, how'd you get a proton and a neutron from two protons? Well, that's because when they come together, um, I think it's the weak force that changes the the proton's composition. It changes one of the up quarks to a down quark, therefore changing the charge from plus one to zero. So this is super crazy. Um, and this happens in nature. Um, I mean, I consider the sun to be nature. So you can literally change a proton. You can make a proton into a neutron by just shifting one of the three quarks that compose it. So that's really cool. Yeah, I think that is cool. Um, I think, you know, while I don't want to get too deep into quantum mechanics, but it's really interesting to just even think about, like, matter waves. You know, not really a quantum mechanical phenomenon. It's, you know... It uh, corresponds to anything, but like a baseball emits matter waves. Isn't that crazy? Like you throw a baseball and there's waves. Just like because the wavelength is so, so, so tiny, right? Such a large frequency. We can't see them because we can't. The only way to see waves or see, you know, um, in air quotes is to make like a, like a, an interference, uh, to see an interference or a diffraction um, pattern, right? An interference pattern. We can't build a slit that's on the order of magnitude with the Bragg condition of, you know, something that tiny. But that's just crazy. Like, everything emits waves. I think that's wild to, like, you throw a basketball and there's matter waves associated with it. Yeah, that, that is crazy. Um, quantum mechanics is, is fascinating um, because, in a way, it's like what we're all made of um, to the most basic sense. If you go the deepest down you can go, we're all a collection and set of arrangements of up and down quarks and electrons um and something also cool about quantum mechanics is like not only we show that things are composed of even smaller things like protons composed of quarks but there's also something called antimatter um which is just basically that every particle has an antimatter counterpart and when this particle collides with its counterpart with its antimatter so when matter hits antimatter they annihilate each other and their energy becomes pure energy in accordance to our friend e equals mc squared now another application of that famous equation so it's basically um so we all know an electron what an electron is it's a fundamental particle particle and the antimatter counterpart of the electron is what we call a positron and when the electron hits a positron they annihilate each other and they emit energy uh, photons and that is that is really fascinating this is true this happens um, in nature and this is also this is why black holes are constantly over time why black holes are losing matter this is called something this is something called the Hawking radiation and this is the explanation why black holes um, or decaying and becoming smaller and smaller over time. We're gonna we're gonna circle back to that in a second. But yeah, John or Greg, you guys want to add anything to that? No, I think that's uh, that's definitely a really valid point. It's, that's super cool. Um, while we're I guess while we're on the topic of quantum mechanics, we could briefly talk about like um, you know the wave function or quantum tunneling. I mean, I think that's a super cool thing. But I guess people always like um, people people always like kind of gloss over that a little bit um 
unless you want to talk about something else. I mean, it's up to you guys if you want to talk about that real quick or uncertainty. I mean, I think that's great. So I guess like uncertainty, um, a lot of people think like, oh, it's uncertainty of measurement. It's like error or something. But actually, it's it's really nothing like error. It's actually um, it's actually a physical thing. So like the more we know about the momentum of a particle, the less we know about its position. Um, and I guess pure from a purely mathematical standpoint, if we have a monochromatic plane wave, right? So like cosine of kx minus omega t, that goes on infinitely in space, um, in, in some direction. Um, and basically um, associated with that is the fact that, um, you know, we don't know the, the particle's position. It could be anywhere in space. So we can never have a localized electron. So obviously that can't be the description of an electron. We, we know that for a fact that that can't be the description. So we can use some Fourier analysis um, to create a, a wave packet um, of the electron and we can use an infinite superposition of waves with different wavelengths and we can say that the width of this modulation is like delta k which is a wave number and basically um, what we can say is okay so we get some delta k which is our width and we can get some delta x which is our so delta k is the number of wavelengths we have to um, to, to push together to add together in order to localize a particle in some delta x. And so the bigger, the, the larger the number of wavelengths we add, to add together, the greater, or the, the, the smaller the distance that we can localize a particle. And the smaller the number of um, wavelengths, the, great, the greater the distance, and vice versa. So essentially, um, when we look at this from a quantum mechanical perspective, instead of Fourier analysis, we find that there's a relationship where the uncertainty in the momentum, which can be, um, times the uncertainty in the position is always greater than or equal to um, h bar over 2, where h bar is just h over 2 pi, and h is just, um, it's Planck's constant. So we have re the reduced Planck constant h bar. And so, like, basically, the more you know about a particle's momentum, the less you know about its position. And the more you know about its position, the less you know about its momentum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, this really relates to electrons and atoms. Um, like, through uh, quantum mechanics, uh, like an electron in an atom, it does not orbit in the usual sense. And um, you can only find like the probability of an electron being in a particular location. And um, this, yeah, it's, and there's a, yeah, uh, the, yeah, location momentum equation. Um, it's uncertainty in location times uncertainty in momentum. And it approximates to Planck's constant. Yeah, I mean, that's just an approximation. I mean, it, yeah, it, yeah formally, um, there's a lot more you can do, especially when you have the wave function, but it's crazy to think. So like the wave function doesn't actually correspond to like something physically. Um, and if you look at like the dispersion relation for the, the Fourier integral for the matter wave packet, um, like the group velocity corresponds to the velocity of the particle, but the phase velocity is always greater than the speed of light. So it has no physical meaning within the system. It's just like, um, a, a, like a construct that's used to localize an electron within space. So I, I think that's super interesting. But another thing while we're on the topic of like um, uncertainty is quantum tunneling. I think super interesting. And it's something that can be understood if you have like an electron localized in, in some potential well, some finite potential well, right? There's always a probability. Like classically, if the energy of the electron is less than the potential, it's always going to be confined to that region. But quantum mechanically, um, even if the energy of the electron or the energy of the particle, let's not use the, elect the word electron, but the energy of the particle is less than the, the potential, um, actually it has, there's a finite probability that it's going to be, it's going to tunnel through the boundaries. Um, this is commonly known as quantum tunneling and 
you know i think this is an interesting phenomenon yeah yeah so it's like um a way a way to visualize it maybe it's imagine that you have you have a particle and you know that the probability that the electron is in a certain place like you can never know right because the more you know about the whole point of this is that the more you know about where it is the less you know about where it's um it's momentum right where it's going um so the idea of basic quantum tunneling is like if you don't know where where some where something is only its momentum it could disappear and appear in different places very fast i guess um is that is that a correct way to think about it do you think um i'm not really sure what you mean by disappear and appear but i understand like the intuition you're going for i guess i guess a a, a way to think about it is just like if you think about it, the probability is just the wave function squared and you look at the wave function near a potential well um like the wave function squared near a potential well like at that boundary there is some finite probability that it will be there's a non-zero probability the electron could be found in the the sides of the potential well and as a result of this i mean um there's a probability um because the wave function squared is the probability of finding an electron at x so we're looking at like a one-dimensional uh, potential well here um so i think like a good way to think about this is just like if we make the width of the sides of the confining box almost equal to um like smaller than the um smaller than the uncertainty then we could say that there is a probability that the electron would tunnel through the barrier and this is the this is the technology that like stm is based on like scanning tunneling microscopy like um you can bring a a tip arbitrarily close to a substrate and you can image like in air quotes you know atomically image things um because of this phenomenon because of the the probability of an electron to tunnel through a barrier right and i mean the the media likes to blow this all up you're like oh like you can run at a wall and there's a finite probability you'll go through like no that's that's not it doesn't apply like if you look at the correspondence principle like that's just not um it doesn't apply in that region but it's definitely a realistic thing for on the um on the quantum uh, you know the atomic scale there's definitely a, a very sizable probability not sizable that's a bad word but there's a finite probability of tunneling through their side and if you look at like the ground state versus like the first excited state versus the second excited state you can see the tails of the probability density function that governs the location of the particle there is a finite amount of the tail that's in both of the sides of the barrier so just something to consider i mean not really um not really applicable to everyday to the macroscopic world but definitely an interesting phenomenon i think yeah it's very interesting um well john do you have to go yeah i gotta run but anyways so yeah it's been a it's been a pleasure having you here thank you for stopping by and uh yeah man have a good rest of your day thanks thanks i'll see you guys thank you have a good one greg um do you got your call soon uh oh yeah i do okay so what we're gonna do greg's gotta take a call and i'm pretty hungry um so we're gonna take a break and then we'll be back okay welcome back and we're after our break um after dinner and now it's only me and greg john john left to go do something else and we thought about finishing wrapping wrapping up this last 30 minutes to an hour um about talking about life you know we've been talking about um space and some pretty abstract concepts for the last hour and a half which was a ton of fun 
and we'd like to finish um, bringing it all together and talking about what is life and how life arose on earth so yeah Greg what do you think life is in your opinion not not like the point of life yeah. or human purpose but just like in your opinion like what what defines a living organism I think um I was about to say like being conscious but I, I don't think that's the word um yeah because like I don't I wouldn't you say I wouldn't a plant say, yeah is conscious. exactly yeah. or like a cockroach or something like that so um I I just think I think it's if you if you need nutrients in order to survive and uh, if you like use energy because I think like that's something that I think distinguishes all like living beings from like rocks per se yeah I agree it's like you, you need to use energy like you have to be doing some sort of process and you you can't be static it's like a factory exactly like a factory is using energy and it's creating something but I wouldn't consider it to be life yeah you know mm-hmm. or a car you know mm-hmm. sure yeah but I wouldn't, oh, I wouldn't yeah. consider it to be life perhaps that's where water comes in perhaps perhaps that's where all, yeah 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 it's a it's a very tough question though. yeah it really we're just is. we're just brainstorming. Yeah, here. honestly. Uh, yeah. Well, but yeah, well, life as we know it, at least we know that there are some some necessities for life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and uh, I guess those are one a nutrient source, as we touched on a little bit earlier. Um, energy, like such as sunlight, we all need sunlight in order to survive, and um, and liquid water. And yeah, yeah, and like. People have been saying that liquid water has been the hardest to find on on different planets. Yeah. Um, like, so that's why that's why a lot of people um, suggest Mars to be a planet to go to because there is there's a lot of water. But we'll mm. we'll come back to Mars later. Yeah, it's it's just crazy. It's like, but what you said is true. All life needs an energy source, like water or some other liquid. And, um, yeah. So, the interesting thing about life on Earth as well is that we all, we all have a common ancestor. Like, every, everything, um, comes, every living organism that we know comes from a single ancestor, which is, (laughs) so we all have the same grandfather in a way, I guess. Yeah. Uh, we're and, all related. And grandmother. Um, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like if you like if you were to map the genetics, I'm pretty sure that um, this tree, al- this the kind of like tree of life you'd form. Yeah. That um, animals and plants are just like a tiny part. You got bacterias and. Um, Archaea. Yeah. Yeah. Eukarya. That, yeah, yeah, exactly. The, mm-hmm. the yeah. different. Yeah that's all that's all kind of thing and since we all have a common ancestor we must have we must have evolved right something mm-hmm. because something through time allowed us allowed us to change um and even though we may never know what this first organism was um we know that well obviously we're not plants and we're not bacteria mm-hmm. so something changed in the process and i think the most 
the most predominant th- theory here is um, evolution, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think like I guess Darwin's theory of natural selection and um, essentially like it's in our DNA to naturally create some mutations, and sometimes these mutations. Uh, they benefit us. They allow us to easily adapt to our environments and almost like excel within our environments. And those are those mutations that are uh, passed on down to our ancestors or it happened to our ancestors where these good mutations, uh, they end up being passed down and uh, they're still prevalent today. Exactly. So yeah, why don't you, for the people at home who are not super familiar, why don't you give us like a brief rundown about I mean, what is Darwin's theory of evolution and what is natural selection? Um, Like, if you could give us a brief summary, I think that'd be helpful. Yeah, so uh, natural selection is essentially, like, the survival of the fittest. So, like, let's say, hypothetically, um, there's a a herd of antelope in Africa. This is just an example. Um, And they have predators, cheetahs. Uh, Through this theory, only the fastest will survive or the most fit antelopes will survive because yeah, those because are the ones <laughs> the that are, ones are going to get eaten <laughs> exactly the slow ones are going to get eaten and it ends up being that um these antelopes are the ones that are able to survive and ultimately procreate and add create more antelopes with these same genes and uh the same goes for um cheetahs because like let's say you're a cheetah and you're hunting and you're not fast enough to hunt you're not quick enough you're not healthy enough you're going to starve to death. Yeah. It's only the cheetahs that are able to eat that are going to be able to live. So it's, it's, I guess like the saying is like the circle of life. Uh, it's just like an ongoing thing where like no matter like what species you are, only like uh, it's just only the ones that are the it's, most yeah. fit are going to be able to survive and procreate. Exactly. And it's, and like the second part of the theory is like, these mostly most of these mutations just they're just or or derived from random processes right there's Mm -hmm. like pure luck in a way yeah it's like your dna gets mutated and you can get lucky and be a great mutation Mm -hmm. that allows you to um be the fittest and thrive through natural selection or Mm -hmm. um, maybe the opposite you know you have a mutation that's bad and will will be bad for you so it's like in a way it's some people could you could argue you could argue that is somewhat unfair it's kind of, it's kind of kind of like a genetic lottery yeah but it's also like it does ensure that the group at large will be the best possible mm-hmm. because it's evolving um like individuals are paying the cost for the overall improvement of that species so it's um i think several several um heated debates can be had about evolution mm-hmm. and you can also tie it back to political theories that are deeply deeply root systems that are complete uh the name is running away from me but what do you call a system like a political system that has one person is it an autocracy oh um, uh, I think it is. Yeah, maybe, could be that. Yeah, or the, it's like a tyranny, like a dictatorship. Yeah, somewhat Th- of a dictatorship, like but it's yeah. like more fanatical. Yeah, but it's not um, it's not mm-hmm. a tyr- tyrannical government. Oh. Um, 
I'll look it up. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of, um, governments, um, and ideas and extreme groups have been, like, deeply rooted in this concept of natural selection because, um, even socially, like, Karl Marx, Mm -hmm. um, rooting his ideology and, like, that the Basque class is going to survive and overcome the other classes. Mm -hmm. And so people just... Um, making biased and most of the time, I think yeah. every single time, untrue beliefs. Or like, yeah, the Aryan race. Exactly. The exactly. Nazi party. That's a classic. Like that. It's like yeah. believing and using Darwin's theory um, to argue for something yeah. that would... You're essentially just using your societal power just to like exercise something like a, some scientific theory. Exactly. So, a lot of heated debates, but I... I believe that the theory of evolution is true. Yeah. It's true. And um, I think evidence at this mm-hmm. point is almost beyond doubt. Yeah. Like, but there's a reason why we're here right now. You know? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but it does... It, it has the ability to generate a lot of a lot of arguments. And yeah. if people misinterpret it mm-hmm. or misuse it in any way, it can be, it can be pretty dangerous. You it know, can. you have to be very aware yeah. that people or you're not being manipulated exactly yeah totalitarianism mm-hmm. oh that's yeah. the word yeah. totalitarian so like um nazi germany mm. was considered to be a totalitarian government yeah so yeah anyways um gone on a bit of a tangent here mm-hmm. but yeah. uh, <laughs> the point is that like all of life originated from one common ancestor mm-hmm. and well all of life has dna at least on earth and random mutations on this dna have allowed have given advantages and disadvantages to specific individuals and therefore species and it's kind of acted like a great filter through time which has allowed um people to evolve and that's kind of how how life on earth like as we know it came to be even though we don't know how it started um specifically we know that like we are different than plants and bacteria and everything else and that is because we have evolved through random mutations Mm -hmm. in our dna so i think it might be helpful for us to like talk about an overall timeline um to give some perspective so for about four and a half billion years ago um the early oceans in earth form and a billion years after that some bacteria started releasing oxygen in our in our atmosphere and two billion years ago oxygen began building up and only about 200 million years ago was when dinosaurs and um, small mammals ruled the earth then they died and (laughs) early early humans have only been around for a few million years i saw something i saw this once i think Neil deGrasse Tyson I was watching a documentary with him and he mentioned that if you were to put the entire length of the the like we know the the observable universe has been around for like 14 billion years or something like that if you were to convert that to a calendar like 365 days humans have only existed on the last hours or minutes of the last day yeah 
that's really gets you thinking. Seriously gets you thinking. Uh, another thing that like um, I'm curious about is uh, is like you said it was about like 200 million years ago that the dinosaurs ruled the earth. Um, I, I I remember after learning about this in class, I like the first thing I did was all right, I'm gonna Google like how smart were these dinosaurs, and I like <laughs> I like read that they're like as smart as like a bird. Really, is, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, and like I don't know, it's it's I feel like there's a lot that we don't know about like the Jurassic Age, and I yeah I feel like they're almost as if like if you there's just so much that you can learn if you were there in person rather than just observing fossils and things like that. Yeah. It'd be, I was like talking about this with a couple of friends and they were like, even though it's not possible, imagine you could teletransport to anywhere. Mm -hmm. If you were to like, so let's suppose you want to go back in time, mm -hmm. quote unquote, 200 million years ago. If you could instantly go to a star that is 200 million light years from earth and then you had like a super mega powerful telescope and you would aim that telescope at earth mm -hmm. you would be looking, looking at the jurassic age at the jurassic yeah. age yeah so that that would be really That's, dope that'd be awesome like, you yeah. could you, you could see the past you really could yeah yeah every time we see light from the stars mm -hmm. We're looking at the past. Like I think light from the sun takes eight or twelve minutes mm -hmm. to reach Earth. Yeah. And so Yeah. So that that's a, a food for thought. Yeah. Perhaps one day we can travel at the speed of light. Make it possible. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? And even like Yeah, I think you'd have to teletransport because then you'd have like light was had to catch to you. Yeah. But even so it's like you could see so many interesting things. Mm-hmm settle so many political debates and so yeah. like, like imagine if you like i don't know you could go as far as away as you want and just look to see if something that was set to happen actually happened yeah. you know for real um i think that would be a <laughs> mm -hmm. like that, a huge one like the uh the pyramids big. yeah exactly pyramids, like you know? how were the pyramids constructed Made. yeah, yeah. <laughs> settle a lot of um a lot of theories there yeah but yeah so that's also cool because, like, life also gave the possibility for other forms of life. So it's like, I think I mentioned that bacteria came about um, a couple billion years ago or maybe a million. Mm -hmm. But the point is, it's like, that bacteria that came, yeah, I just looked it up. Yeah. So it was 3.5 billion years mm -hmm. ago. So that bacteria through photosynthesis was able to release oxygen in the atmosphere which gave the opportunity for people like us to exist and exactly. mammals and and uh, several other animals that require oxygen mm -hmm. to to survive so i think it's nice to see the cycle of life creating conditions mm -hmm. and environments for other life yeah and I think that's that's a really cool thing. Mm -hmm. That's really neat. Awesome. Yeah. I think another thing that's really cool is, um, like, where exactly did life come from? I remember uh, reading in class, uh, it talked about how, like, Venus, Earth, and Mars, like, 
they have exchanged tons of rocks. Yeah. You know, like these rocks have been blasted into orbit. So um, is there like a chance that um, life from Venus is what, you know, evolved and created into, you know, like something new? Like, yeah, uh, cause I, like yeah. Some, some microbes um, can survive years in space. Mm -hmm. So what if Earth was just like the incubator, yeah. but everything actually originated in Venus or Mars? That mm -hmm. would be interesting. Yeah, it'd be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. A really cool organism is um, our octopus or oh, octopi. Really? Yeah. How come? <laughs> they're, they're, they're just like, they're really distant uh, from humans. They have like tons of hearts. They're, it's just... I, I feel like they're ton, just anomalous. They have tons of hearts. Yeah, I, I, no I, way. I, you can like fact check me, but I okay. believe it's like seven hearts or something like that. That's insane. Um, or maybe three. I don't know. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I, j I just know that uh, octopi are they're just deemed to be like just enigmas of organisms. Like people can't don't really understand them. And some people even that. think that like they're aliens or something. Oh really? Like, wow, yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, technically, we all aliens. But yeah, do you think that? Um, do you think that we'll ever go to Mars? Do you think there's a chance for humans to sustain life on Mars? That's a good question. Um, well, it I, does have water, right? Yeah, yeah. Th there is like evidence that there was water on Mars in the distant past, and um, I mean, I think that th we'll learn a lot through like these new rovers that we're having on Mars, like Curiosity. We even like um, flew a drone on Mars, which is amazing because we can get a whole nother perspective from the sky and really like explore a lot more of the planet. Um, so I really think that those uh, like pieces of technology on Mars are gonna be huge in indicating whether or not humans do have a chance to survive on Mars. Um, but honestly, like whether or not those like those pieces of technology are able to find like uh, evidence of uh, habitability. Um, I, I do think that like within our lifetime, I think we'll be able to go to Mars, hopefully by 2050. Who knows? Oh, who knows? Yeah, because yeah. I mean, I think the biggest problem with Mars at the moment is that it's it's too cold. Yeah. It's too cold, it so is. the water's all frozen up. Yeah. And I th I saw. I think Elon Musk was talking about it and he was suggesting just having like making a way to create several nuclear explosions yeah. at the poles so you could like yeah. defrost some of the yeah. water and try to get an atmosphere going mm. again. Yeah, just essentially have like a constant nuke. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a weapon a weapon of great destruction, destruction. might be the one that saves, saves humanity, humanity after all. The irony it is yeah. it's so nothing i think it's very hard for you to classify something as being inherently good or bad mm -hmm. you know yeah i I'm, mean i know like the guy who made the atomic bomb i don't think he f felt good about it at all i think he felt like an awful awful person but i mean yeah. it, it had to happen in order to learn more you know it's all yeah. in the and pursuit of knowledge exactly and also war war is honestly one of the biggest catalysts for for science so several of the biggest technological innovations and creations of our time have been derived from war. Mm -hmm. I think like, um, as you said, I think when you put humans in a position 
of survival where you have to you have to innovate or die even if it's for a flawed cause of of killing other of your species um which makes almost no sense but it does it is a catalyst for innovation it, it, and, it is and we have seen that repeatedly over mm-hmm. history yeah because i'm a, like a huge proponent of winning a war is just you know being a step ahead of your opponent and yeah. so when you're in war you're going to feel the drive to innovate i mean i think that's the whole reason why like during world war ii and a Alan lot Turin of people and yeah go ahead go ahead uh, during world war ii a lot of people they just started working in factories just pumping out tanks pumping out you know, weapons, things like that. And I'm sure the engineers behind these innovations, they're, you know, working like crazy. Yeah, and and it's like the first computer, Alan Turing created it, Mm -hmm. um, the Turing machine. Yeah. It was as a desperate thought because Mm -hmm. they needed to find a way to crack the Nazi codes. Exactly. And the only way to do it was through a a computer. Exactly. Um, That's amazing. That's a little more of... Natural selection, I guess. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In a way, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. If it, yeah, it's probably is not. It, it's is it natural selection? That's probably not a good I, thing. I, I um, mean, but it's like it's unfortunate yeah. that um, war has happened. Mm-hmm. But it's fortunate that at least we got something out of it. Yeah, at least right. Mm-hmm. Better than nothing. Always got to look for the silver lining. Exactly. A- amen to that. So, I think we deviated a little bit, but it's like. There's also only certain planets and only very few habitable zones that humans can take. Like, yeah. we're already limited by water. We're limited by oxygen, and we're definitely limited by temperature. So there's there even if we end up going interstellar, we have to find planets that fit the conditions our species has grown and evolved to in different systems and i don't think that's they're like countless of systems but i don't think that's that's going to be very easy to find um to find and be able to get there and safely because it also takes a lot of time yeah i think something saying like to go to mars in the most optimal scenario of the technology we have today is like six months mm-hmm. and then you have to wait two years to be able to go back because the planets have to be aligned yeah yeah. So it's not it's not an easy task at all, but nevertheless, I think I think it would it would be fun. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think? What are, what are your thoughts on extraterrestrial life? Um, that's it, it's I, like there are a couple options. It's either we're the only ones out there, or there are a ton of other different types of life out there. And, uh, like, it, I mean, if you look at Drake's equation, um, I, like, that that equation just basically says there are a huge number of civilizations with we could uh, potentially communicate with, even within our galaxy. Um, personally, I do think that there's life outside of Earth. Um, whether or not think? they... Yeah, I, okay. I do think so. Do you think it's evolved? Or do you think it's, like, in the microbial stage? I, I feel like it could be both. Like, then again, remember when we were talking about um, the different gravities of different planets? And yeah. How that can affect yeah. how they progress? It's <laughs> so like, that's an, that's another factor. Like, so I, I think that, the fact that that is there, I th- personally think that there's some planets that will be more advanced than Earth. 
and there are some planets that'll just be less advanced of Earth. And I wouldn't be shocked if, I mean, I would be shocked, but like I theoretically, sh- I think I think the entire world would be shocked. Yeah, definitely. But like theoretically, there could be like a civilization where time just moves so quick for them, like relative to us. Yeah, relative exactly. to us, like a year will pass for us, but like on their planet, it's the equivalent of like a thousand years. No. Yeah. Yeah. You see, I mean, you never know. Um, that is such a that is a very interesting thought. I'm yeah. glad we we thought about that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, Greg mentioned Drake's equation. So Drake's equation basically says that um, the number of civilizations that we could potentially communicate with um, is just the uh, the product or like the multiplication of the total number of habitable planets in a galaxy the fraction of the habitable planets with life the fra- times right so it's like you get the total number of planets that you could in- that are habitable right um not necessarily by humans but i guess yeah that you can have inhabitate and then you multiply that by the percentage of those um planets that have life and then you multiply that by the percentage of those planets w- has that have civilization, and then you multiply that by the percentage of those civilizations that are around now. So it's it's somewhat intuitive. Um, you just I say multiplying, but because they're all fractions, you're just dividing the total number of habitable planets in a galaxy divided by a bunch of different um, filters that you're putting. So the filters are the planets have to have life. Um, they ha- they must have had a civilization at a certain point in time, and that certain point in time has to be now because we're only around now. Um, so, but yeah, there are probably billions of habitable planets. So the Drake, Drake's equation is it's quite optimistic, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a- another thing that um, I think is really interesting is uh if you just look at life on earth and you like compare our brain sizes to other organisms um we're obviously like one of the like smartest beings on the planet if not the smartest on uh, earth oh on yeah earth. for sure yeah so um then again like there are animals with larger brains than us so i, I don't think like brain size is like the only factor that indicates um I guess intelligence, because I mean, I do think we're the smartest animals on the planet. Oh, I'm that, sure we are. Yeah, unless we're being <laughs> very, very ignorant. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I just think that's really interesting, because like, like let's say for instance, an elephant. Elephant's a highly in- intelligent being. Yes. Um, but I would still say at the end of the day, we're smarter than elephants. Oh, hundred yeah. percent. So yeah, as there's, um, I was reading a book called Dune. Have you ever read that book? What's it called? Dune. Dune. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a yeah. fantastic book. Mm-hmm. And I was just reading it. Um, finished it yesterday, by the way. So, and okay. like on the last couple chapters, I had a quote that I really liked, which was, um, the power to destroy something means that you have the control over it or something like that. Yeah. So the general idea is that if you're the one who has the power to destroy something, then you have absolute control over that thing. Mm-hmm. And I personally think that humans have the power to destroy almost everything yeah. on Earth. 
Yeah. We literally have the power to destroy each other. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. therefore, we do have control uh-huh. over the like. Yeah. Elephants cannot unite mm-hmm. at this point in time to destroy yeah. humans. Yeah. And I remember, um, not to go on a tangent or anything, but in middle school, I read this book called uh, "The Most Dangerous Game." Okay. And uh, essentially, it's about this guy who he's a hunter. He like hunts a ton of different exotic you know animals things like that uh-huh. but he has this like weird issue where he likes to kidnap humans put them on an island and then he like will essentially like kind of like have a hunger games competition with them wow that's and, that's horrible yeah it's <laughs> awful but like uh in the book he talks about the thrill of hunting a human as like being completely different from hunting an animal only because we're highly intelligent and like he the book's called the most dangerous game because he's saying hunting humans is by far the most dangerous wow. thing in the world but like it's it's super it makes you think is like obviously like one-on-one with a lion you're not gonna win yes but like <laughs> it's just like i it just i find it really interesting how they indicate that the most in- dangerous game is hunting a human rather now, than and animals. Humans? i think that goes back to your point where um like whoever has the most control um, yeah. is the one who's the most dominant and most dangerous. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And because humans are quite weak mm-hmm. if we're just put on in nature. Yeah. But like, it's it's our it's heads. Without our tools. Yeah. And like I'm considering communication and um social constructs as well mm-hmm. as tools. We are we are arguably biologically uh, like physically worse too <laughs> we would lose yeah. to lions tigers yeah. um, hippos yeah even probably uh baboons yeah oh yeah no yeah any but of the apes would kill us oh 100 yeah. percent. but they don't because of our tools and yeah. i'm and i'm considering here science and um religion and all of those things as tools i think yeah yeah they are yeah they unify us so yeah but, but so I think we went on a bit of a tangent, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> great tangent nevertheless. So back to you, we were talking about. Um, you kind of mentioned something very similar to the Fermi paradox, which says that like, one, we are either all alone in the universe, and we're the only life forms, or two, um, which is like, civilizations are common, and there are extra, there is extraterrestrial life. But interstellar travel is like so difficult, then we just haven't had enough time to find them. And so maybe, I don't know, I, I think this is my favorite, this is my favorite option. Because if, if it's not this, um, well, there's a third option that there is an interstellar galactic civilization and we'll meet them eventually. But... I don't know. I personally find it more comforting to believe the second yeah. option that there are people out there or things or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, but interstellar travel is too difficult at this point in time, yeah. so we don't have to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, because that, 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 then again, you need to like, you need to understand. Like, let's say hypothetically, you do, you are, you know, traveling space, and you do encounter uh, an alien. Um, like, what do you do? Like yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you don't know. You don't know if you should protect yourself. You don't know if you should make peace with them. 
I think that's a huge obstacle. But be also, it could be like they would like this is also assuming that they would have a desire to to explore, which I think is innate. Uh-huh. And I think every every living organism mm-hmm. has a desire to learn yeah. about the universe and to mm-hmm. find their purpose or mm-hmm. whatnot and figure out um, if there's a meaning to all of this. Yeah. But there's also there's also this theory which says something like imagine if like we would not try to express we would not try to teach physics to a worm. Mm-hmm. So maybe there is some interstellar civilization but they're so, so advanced hard. and yeah. so intelligent uh, that we're just like worms are to us what well, we, we are, are to, to them, them. <laughs> and they're like just patiently waiting for uh-huh. us to be able to get to that level that and maybe true. that was a result of them living on a planet where has <laughs> yeah. extremely high gravity and yeah. then you know time mm-hmm. moved different for th- from them or mm-hmm. maybe just evolution played out differently yeah I don't I don't know but it's it's an interest it's food for thought. It is. It really is. It really gets you thinking. Yeah. I, like I've always thought that I mean going back to my hypothetical where like you do see an alien. Personally, yeah. I I think that you should try and break bread with them cuz I oh, think 100%. Yeah. Cuz I think a whole reason why you're able to like evolve to the point where you're able to like travel space is cuz you understand like what making peace does and collaboration does because through collaboration you're able to progress to the moment where you're able to like just explore and who knows maybe if you guys can help each other out you know have a symbiotic relationship and ultimately use that to further progress i mean this is just a complete hypothetical no but i agree it's if if we have the power to destroy our own planet an advanced species with the power of interstellar travel I think I think they could evaporate us if they really wanted yeah, to yeah exactly <laughs> if they really did but they probably understand I yeah. mean if if, all, if everything that we're saying is true they probably would know that hey like we could learn a lot from each other so like oh, let them progress absolutely <laughs> Do you think we'd be able to communicate with them? Because, like, even things that we think are extremely tangible are social constructs, like math. Mm-hmm. Math yeah. math is completely invented, you know? Like, yeah. I guess so. Uh, maybe, maybe, like, math for them is something different. Mm-hmm. Or, do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, like, what if they have, like, a number in between six and seven? Exactly, like, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I... Like I, yeah, it, I know what you're trying to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, yeah, it's just like something completely. Yeah, it's know, just like, like they absurd. don't have numbers. Yeah, you know, or they don't. They don't even. They don't even have language. Mm-hmm. They're so advanced that they communicate. I don't know only with their brainwaves, and they have mm-hmm. not have the need to learn language, or they just yeah. unlearned it because they have never. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's I. It's a good question. You yeah. know. Um. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's well, exciting I mean, stuff. Exciting stuff. Very exciting stuff. Yeah. So. Um. Yeah. Well, I had a I had a great time. Yeah. This is awesome. Um. I definitely like probably the most fun extra credit assignment I've ever done in my life. Same. Mm-hmm. I I think it was great because 
we were able to actually talk some physics, mm-hmm. but we did it in a fun way. Exactly. And um, we got some friends. We got some friends. Mm-hmm. gave gave our opinions. Mm-hmm. Talked a lot about theories and um, hypotheticals, which is very exciting. Yeah. So yeah, um, thanks for thanks for listening with those guys. Hope you guys enjoyed yourself, and thank you so much. Hope you have a, a great rest of your day, and we're going to sign out today. Yep. Peace. Peace.